Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number seven in our series for 2018. And today's date is Friday, March the 30th. Good Friday. First of all, I talked to Ryan Murtag about the government's new global talent scheme, replacing the 457 visa program. Ryan is a CEO and founder of established Australian tech and retail management software company Nito, currently employing about 130 people. Ryan is questioning why the new scheme supports the top and bottom end of town, but ignores the huge segment of the Australian business landscape that is SMBs. Many businesses in this segment of the market employed people under the previous 457 visa scheme. And then I talked to economist RMIT Associate Professor Jonathan Boimel about the risks surrounding the Australian housing market. But first, let's talk to Ryan Murtagh. And I apologise for the quality of this Skype interview, but it's well worth listening to. Ryan Murtagh, the government has introduced a global talent scheme for technology, science and engineering businesses, which will replace the 457 visa scheme. What's your view about that? I'm really excited about it. And it's great that the government's being proactive in this space. It's, it's you know, the 457 business scheme is something that we, we used for a number of years and have used actually since we started NITO. We've got a number of employees that are currently employed under it. Um, so it's, a, it's great to see that they are being proactive and they are, you know, testing something new. The only thing I would say is that it's great for startups. 
It's great for the big guys, uh, but for the smaller uh, technology companies like Nito, I feel um, you know like there's a little bit of a gap uh, in this scheme in terms of it supporting businesses like us. So um, you know, I, I, I guess the threshold of one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year uh, for a business based in Brisbane is a little bit high, and we feel that we can find global talent that are willing to come and work in Australia for the lifestyle benefits that Australia offer uh, for potentially. A, a fair bit less than that. So um, we as a company will struggle um, to, I guess, um, yeah, higher, higher with that threshold. I guess there'd be many other businesses uh, uh, in the mid-range would be struggling to meet that level as well. Yeah, and I mean, I'm talking from experience too in terms of we've hired over 10 uh, of our staff now on 457 uh, business visas. And, you know, yes, salary was an important point for them you know, coming to NITO, but lifestyle opportunity and you know, the opportunity to work for a technology, you know, and I still class us as a startup, startup out, outweighed the fact that, um, you know, they might not be, be paid 180 plus thousand dollars a year. Uh, where are these people coming from? Uh, so we've hired uh, people from all over the world. So we have people coming uh, from the States. Um, we've had a number of people from Asia. We've got some people from Poland, um, from Holland. Um, so, yeah, really all over the world. These are all these are all tech people, obviously. Yeah, and that, there's a big range within that so you know within the, the technology space we have engineers we have product analysts we have security analysts we have data analysts um, so it's not necessarily software developers like a lot of people might think um, it's actually quite broad the spectrum of talent well it's, it's interesting because um, a lot has been said about the skill shortages in australia and i notice uh, there there seem to be fewer and fewer people now doing uh, computer courses now uh, which is sad and so we have fewer and fewer specialists yeah and, and probably fewer and fewer specialists, but also people that have got, you know, the experience um, that is necessary for a business um, of, our, of our size trying to compete on a, on a global scale. So what we do find, you know, especially in countries like Poland, which, you know, there's a, a, a huge investment in tech in, in Poland. There's a very big uh, startup community. There's, um, you know, a very big tech community. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of experience. Um, we are, we're not able to get that level of experience here in, in Brisbane or, or Australia, even uh, for that matter yet um especially in the product space we're finding too it's really really hard to find experienced product managers product analysts uh, etc down under right because because we're simply not producing them is that right yeah i think we're, we're simply not producing them and also um in terms of you know I, I guess where australia is in terms of its maturity in this space um you know we're not as mature as a as a country um in terms of you know highly techno technologically advanced um businesses especially in the startup space at least in that that's what we feel in, in sort of the, the area that we play in which is you know digital commerce um there's very few digital commerce startups in this this uh, country and therefore uh there's very little experience in that space and so, therefore, we need this, this expertise from overseas. But this would also be an issue in other countries as well. I would imagine it would also be an issue in the States and uh, in the UK. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's an extremely competitive environment uh, over in the States. We know we've been looking at expanding um, to the States, and, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of negative sentiments around the, the culture amongst uh, startups over there in terms of the competitive nature 
of the industry and the lack of uh, loyalty between you know businesses and their their employees because of that. So it's it's something we don't want to have to do if we if we don't need to. If that makes sense. We we want to stay here as long as we possibly can. But in order to to compete, we do need to be attracting uh, you know the talent that enables us to do so. Back back to the government's changes. I mean, they replaced the four five seven visa scheme. I mean, how effective was the four five seven visa scheme for you guys? Extremely effective. Um, like I said, um, right now we have over ten, and we're not, you know we're not a huge company. We'd fall into the, the SMB bracket. We have around 130 staff, and over ten of those are currently employed under that scheme. So, uh, extremely effective. And um, another thing that's probably important to note is you know some of our very early hires um, came through that that program. You would never have been able to attract uh, that talent um, if that scheme wasn't in place because we didn't necessarily uh, pay uh, those employees what they might have been earning uh, back in their local market like the U.S., uh, but the lifestyle opportunity that Australia was able to offer those people was far greater and of far, far more importance to them than the salary they were going to get from moving from the US to Australia and working for an Australian tech company. Uh, and that's what's concerning for me with the scheme is that ultimately uh, people like that are ruled out for, for us if we can't afford to pay the $180,000 a year plus salary. And, and being a Brisbane-based uh, company, um, you know, that, that's it's hard to pallet because, yes, it's maybe fine in, in Sydney and Melbourne where salaries are maybe, you know, 30 to 40% higher and, and should be due to the cost of, of living. Um, you know, this scheme, I guess, hasn't taken where the business is located into account at all. But also it, it probably doesn't take into account the mid-range businesses that can't possibly afford $180,000. And yeah. that they would be true of businesses whether they're in Brisbane, Sydney or Melbourne. And it's probably the largest sector of the market too, I would say. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe they, there's less of those at the top end and, and the bottom end, which allows them to, in a more agile way, test and learn this new scheme. And potentially that's the reason why they've done it this way. And I sort of commend them for doing it as a trial because hopefully, you know, by trialing it, you know, things like this will be, be found out and uh, we'll be able to iterate and improve. Um, and they will, which is, you know, very much in line with new ways of working from a technology company perspective. Um, but yeah, I do feel like we're sort of left out in the well, this scheme will initially run for only 12 months. So, so what will you be doing in, the, in that over that period? Will you be making your views known to the government or, or through your association? Uh, yeah, and we have already. Um, so we'll continue to do that. And I think you know, actions speak louder than words and we won't be able to to hire at the same, I guess, rate we were, or at least we won't be able to, to uh, you know, t- to seek our talents internationally at the same way we were, because um, simply we can't afford to do so at that, at that salary level. Now, where's the strongest demand for these areas? I mean, is it for programmers? Is it for data scientists? Is it product managers? Um, you know, for us, historically, it's been in uh, product managers um, and uh, engineers, so senior engineers in in specific uh, technologies. Um, yeah, I would say those are the two areas that uh, we've struggled to find talent locally um, and therefore have had to you know seek it uh, globally. That's where the big gaps are. Yeah, for us at least. I, mean, I, can't, I can't speak for every technology company, but um, in, in, in our space, finding product managers that have got you know digital retail or digital commerce experience of a few years um, that are akin to modern ways of working and, and development 
governance, um, and then engineers who have um, you know a number of years of experience in the types of technologies that we use. Um, they, they're few and far between uh, down under. How long has this situation been going on with these skill shortages, or has it always been thus? Well, it's always been. You know, for, for us, it's it's always been the case, especially as we get into the more senior roles. So, um, obviously, as as a very early stage startup, and I think this is why this program is very good uh, for early stage startups or for true startups. Um, it was a little bit of a different situation because we weren't necessarily looking for people that had that same level of experience as we're looking for today. So we're looking for more senior highs now that have got, you know, five plus years experience. Um, and so that's become increasingly hard. Um, but having said that, you know, we, we employed our first person on a 457 uh, visa. I think it was back in 2012. So we've been experiencing, uh, you know, this for quite a while now. So you'll be letting the government know we're all short and you'll be you're going to hope they're going to fix up the scheme over the next 12 months for sure definitely um and like i say um until then we're just going to have to focus our attention uh, locally which is obviously what we always do first um and hope that we can find the talent here well ryan best of luck to you and uh, thank you very much for talking to us thanks leon thank you and now let's talk to economist jonathan boimel Jonathan Boimel, there have been issues about the Australian housing market and there are talks that it's running at high risks. What's your view about that? Well, we've seen um, in the year to date that house prices have fallen by about 1% across capital cities. Again, that's since the start of of this year. Um, Sydney has uh, led the decline, uh, a reduction in 1.8%. Melbourne's not far behind reduction in 0.5%. You've got to remember in the Melbourne context that this uh, compares to the rapid double-digit growth um, that we saw earlier last year. Um, So it looks like that the crackdown on interest-only lending is working. Um, And going forward, um, as a leading indicator, we're seeing that uh, housing finance is declining, um, and that's driven by a reduction in investor finance, so I'd expect to see these moderate price declines to, uh, to continue. Uh, that being said, there's probably no real relief for people in Melbourne and Sydney who are looking to buy a, a house. It's probably uh, too late. We've seen uh, growth in prices of established houses um, outstripping um, income growth for quite an extended period of time. So uh, people might uh, want to look elsewhere. Nonetheless, uh, companies such as UBS are saying that uh, the crackdown on things like interest-only lending could actually cause a credit crunch. What's your view about that? Well, I think we're always concerned about uh, the impact on wealth um, from these sort of changes and the downside risks to consumption um, that might result. Um, I'm not particularly concerned. If you look at Um, The price declines to date, uh, I don't think it's sufficient to rattle the economy. I think housing prices remain underpinned by supply-side factors and and demand-side factors. On the supply side, we've got zoning laws, development restrictions. Um, On the demand side, we know we've got population growth. Um, We know we've got preferential treatment um, of housing as an asset. So... I think, uh, if anything, we'll see a a soft landing. 
um, rather than significant concerns about uh, about uh, credit crashes. Nevertheless, so households are very, very indebted. I mean, household indebtedness is very high. How big a risk is that? Look, it's a significant risk. Um, and if you take a look at uh, the most recent um, RBA meeting minutes, uh, that is recognised. So the Reserve Bank of Australia won't be in any hurry to increase interest rates, um, even though interest rate markets are still pricing in an increase in interest rates. If you think back to when we had our last cut in interest rate um, in August 2016, uh, unemployment was 5.6% then. Um, It remains unchanged. Uh, So I don't see the Reserve Bank um, running in um, and increasing interest rates, both again because of the state of the state of the economy, declining waging, uh, declines in wages growth, um, contributing to lower inflation outcomes. Um, wages growth we know is 2.6 percent um, over last year. That's near record lows. And again, the Reserve Bank of Australia very conscious about how small changes in interest rates could impact consumption on the part of um, highly indebted households. Uh, So I think, yeah, Reserve Bank's going to be very, very cautious um, over the next over the next few few months. Nonetheless, the Fed is uh, increasing rates. It's uh, it's uh, just brought in uh, recently brought in a rate increase. Uh, We're we're looking at, say, four rate increases this year, and that will surely have an impact on other central banks, won't it? Look, I'm unsure about that. If you take a look at where the Australian economy is in relation to the US economy, um, there are significant wage pressures emerging in the US. Uh, Unemployment there is at a 17-year low. Um, In Australia, we've got significant excess capacity in the labour market, not just from unemployment, but more importantly from underemployment. Underemployment, we've got part-time workers who want to work additional hours but can't find those additional hours. Underemployment is close to an all-time high. We've got lower inflationary expectations than they do in the US. Um, it's, a very, it's, a very different, it's a very different environment. And I think the Reserve Bank of Australia would quite happily um, accept a reduction in the exchange value of the Australian dollar. Um, so interest rate differentials with um, higher US interest rates leading to, uh, to greater capital inflow into, into the US, driving down the Australian dollar, um, can only help to, to boost exports um, in a, from Australia and actually drive down what is probably an unacceptably high level of both unemployment and underemployment. Nonetheless, uh, Peter Costello, our former treasurer, has pointed to the high indebtedness of households as a significant risk factor. Yes, it is a significant risk factor. There's no doubt about that. But the question is, what else is going to change? And again, the Reserve Bank is going to be very cautious. They're well aware of the established relationship between changes in household wealth and changes in consumption. And keeping that in mind, I think it's going to be one of the the, the major criteria that they use when uh, deciding on interest rate settings going forward. Now, the other interesting thing is about house prices. I mean, they remain high, although the core logic data indicates that they're moderating. Uh, what's your view about that? Yeah, I don't think we going to see a a hard landing, again, because of um, both the supply side factors and the demand side factors 
um, that I mentioned before. You know, we've still got um, strong population growth, driven in part by relatively high levels of immigration. Um, we know that housing has preferential treatment in terms of in terms of its role as an asset. I don't see that going away. I don't see um, the government in any rush to reduce the capital gains discount um, or abolish negative gearing or to include owning occupied housing in the age pension assets test or to be honest to reducing the the migrant intake um, in the short run. Um, so I think this puts a flaw underneath uh, house prices. We know that we not just dealing with a national market for houses, we're dealing with local markets. Um, so we're likely to see some differences in the sub-markets in Australia. I think certainly Sydney has, has further to fall. Melbourne, Melbourne has further to fall. We've seen prices in Brisbane um, relatively stable. House prices in Brisbane has been, have been relatively stable, haven't moved, in fact, since the start of start of this year. Um, so we will find differences in house prices as, as we look across Australia, but I would not expect that either at a national level or in any one particular state um, we'd see significant declines in house prices over the next several months. But what's interesting, though, is that uh, you've got uh, runaway house prices in Hobart and Canberra, and that's holding up the figures. So I mean, when you look at the overall decline... Uh, or the overall moderation, you have to take Hobart and Canberra into account. And if you took them out, the decline would be far bigger. Exactly, exactly. But it's interesting. You tend to see that when house prices in in Sydney increase, uh, people tend to leave New South Wales and go to other states. So there are lags in that mobility. Um, I would not expect to see um, that level of outflow from New South Wales to the other states in over the next few months, again, given the significant reduction in house prices we've seen in Sydney. So I think those differentials will will moderate in the coming months. So you're expecting New South Wales will pick up? House prices in Sydney will pick up again? No, I think house prices uh, in Sydney will probably stabilise and we won't see uh, the growth in, in house prices, for example, in, in Hobart, um, that we have seen. And uh, the same would apply to Melbourne? Correct. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Um, Melbourne, again, still has a bit further to, bit further to go in terms of a decline in, in house prices, uh, particularly given the double-digit growth in house prices on an annual basis that, that we saw at the start of last year. Uh, so Melbourne still has a, has a way to go. Um, but again, don't expect a don't expect a hard landing. So, in summary, you'd say while there are risks, it's not actually catastrophic, and we can expect a soft landing in the housing sector. Exactly. Look, if the Reserve Bank of Australia continues uh, to act cautiously, and I expect that it will act cautiously, concerns about wealth impacts on consumption spending are unlikely to be to be realised. Right, and so what we're in for is rather a moderation rather than a, a crash. That would be my expectation, yes. Well, Jonathan Boymel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
So what's happening in the news? Well, a Trump administration calm offensive to ease investor fears about a potential international trade war by talking about its constructive economic talks with China to reach a trade deal helped global markets rebound this week. That said, stocks fell again after the Trump administration once again fanned the flames of a global trade war amid a new reports that it could move to block China from investing in certain types of US tech companies. On the plus side, reassurances from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin that he was negotiating on improving trade relations in good faith with China's Vice Premier and President Xi Jinping's closest economic advisor, Li He, reduced investor anxiety. The Trump administration is urging China to lower tariffs on cars and open its market to US financial services as part of talks to resolve a rise in trade tensions that has shaken global markets. Mnuchin called Chinese Li He to congratulate him on his appointment this month as Vice Premier in charge of economic policy, and the two discussed the trade deficit between the two countries and committed to finding a mutually agreeable way to reduce the gap. Trump wants to see a $100 billion reduction in America's trade deficit with China this year, as well as action on intellectual property. The US had a $337 billion trade shortfall in goods and services with China last year. The US push to negotiate a detente with Beijing comes after Trump's plan to slap tariffs on $50 billion in Chinese imports sparked a sell-off in US stocks last week. Economic talks between the two superpowers have been stuck in neutral since a meeting last year through their main vehicle of negotiation known as a comprehensive economic dialogue, and that ended without a joint statement. Trump ordered the tariffs after his officials conclude Beijing engages in a range of policies that violate US intellectual property. The president also asked Mnuchin to come up with restrictions on Chinese investments in the US. Now, the Federal Trade Commission has publicly confirmed it was investigating Facebook. Facebook stock fell 5% on Monday after the news broke. Facebook has attracted the FTC's scrutiny over the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Now, Cambridge Analytica is a British political marketing firm that illicitly obtained data on up to 50 million Facebook users that it used to try to influence voters during the 2016 US presidential election and the Brexit vote. It isn't the first time the FTC has investigated Facebook's privacy practices. The agency looked into the company's practices several years ago and found them wanting. In 2011, Facebook entered into an agreement with the FTC that regulated how the social media company treated its users' privacy. With this latest investigation, the FTC will be looking at whether Facebook violated that agreement and whether it violated any FTC regulations more broadly in its dealings with Cambridge Analytica. And Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg has reportedly bowed to pressure and has agreed to testify before US Congress on the massive data leak. Now to Australia, and the government has scrapped plans to get its flagship $65 billion tax cuts bill passed before Easter because it can't secure the last two Senate votes that it needs. Independents Darren Hinch and Tim Storer were still undecided on the bill, leaving the coalition with seven of the nine crossbench votes it needs. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann confirmed in the Senate that the government was making a tactical retreat as it couldn't persuade the nine crossbenchers to get behind the bill, reducing the corporate tax rate from 30% to 25% across every business. 
The latest development is a blow to the government and business after days of raising confidence that it could get the bill through and comes despite support from business leaders and days of intensive negotiations. The Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, told a gathering of chief executives that the government was still committed to delivering the tax cuts. Well, the government now plans to restart the talks after the budget is introduced on May the 8th. And with Senators Hinch and Storer holding out for a better deal, the government believes it can reach agreement with nine of the 11 Senate crossbenchers. Labor, meanwhile, has pledged to repeal any legislation reducing the tax rate for corporations with turnover above $50 million, from 30 to 25%. And Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen said it couldn't be implemented before the next election anyway, as they wouldn't come in until 2019. Now, more than 300,000 low-income retirees will be spared from Labor's plan to scrap cash payments for excess franking credits after the opposition amended the policy, after a lot of political pressure, to exempt full and part-time pensioners, as well as every pensioner who's currently a recipient from a self-managed superannuation fund. The backdown, badged as the pensioner guarantee, will reduce from $11.4 billion to $10.7 billion, the revenue the policy was estimated to make in its first two years, and from $59 billion to $55.7 billion, the revenue it was slated to earn next decade. That's a fall of $3.3 billion. Now, Harvey Norman's dairy company, Kumbuna Holdings, has gone into receivership. The furniture and electronics retailer says the directors of Kumbuna appointed Ferrier Hodgson as administrators of the dairy company and its subsidiaries. It comes after Harvey Norman's profit took a $20.7 million before-tax impairment hit from the Kumbuna joint venture in its half-year results in February, weighing on the group's bottom line. Now, Oz Minerals has lobbed an offer for ASX-listed copper junior Avanco Resources in a deal that values the Brazilian-focused company at $444 million. Oz Minerals has a pre-bid acceptance deed with Appian, which has an 18.45% holding, and that is Avanco's largest shareholder. And Avanco's board has unanimously recommended shareholders accept the proposal. Now, Telstra is facing a $10 million fine over its premium direct billing service, which allows customers to purchase online content from third parties and receive the charge directly on their mobile bill. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission launched legal proceedings against Telstra, alleging that thousands of Telstra mobile phone customers between 2015 and 16 unwittingly signed up to subscriptions or charges with third parties without being required to enter payment details or verify their identity. And the ACCC says Telstra has admitted that it misled customers by charging them for digital content, such as games and ringtones, which they unknowingly purchased. Now, Telstra earned about $61.7 million in net revenue from commissions on premium billing service charged to more than 2.7 million mobile numbers. And Telstra ceased to offer PDB on the 3rd of March. And with Steve Smith and David Warner getting banned from playing cricket for Australia for 12 months as a result of Cricket Australia's investigation into the ball tampering incident, the Australian cricket team's cheating saga has leached into talks at the highest level of government and it could cost Cricket Australia up to $1 billion in the years ahead. Now, the saga has followed Australian leadership around the world. On Monday, Australia's Trade, Tourism and Investment Minister, Steve Siobo, addressed the issue with Australian media in London and admitted the subject had come up during high-level discussions with UK Trade Secretary, Liam Fox. 
The reputational damage comes amid reports the scandal cost Cricket Australia the $1 billion it expected to rake in over the years ahead for television rights to the game. Now, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia's incoming CEO, Matt Coman, has stripped three senior executives from the management team. And the three senior executives are going with Komen putting his personal stamp on the Blanks team. Melanie Lang, the Group Executive of Human Resources, Kelly Bayer, Rosemarin, Group Executive of Institutional Banking and Markets, and David Whiting, Group Executive Enterprise Services and Chief Information Officer, are all leaving. Komen now has four vacancies, including his old position of Group Executive Retail Banking Services on the 12-member Group Executive to fill. No replacements were announced, and Komen made it clear the changes are about rebuilding trust in the bank following a series of scandals, which is all the big four banks being investigated by a Royal Commission. The bank also faces legal action over more than 53,700 alleged contraventions of anti-money laundering laws. And Komen says he wants to rebuild trust and pride in Australia's biggest bank. Now, gold miner Newcrest will recommence mining at its Cadia mine in the New South Wales Central West after part of a tailings dam collapsed. But processing remains suspended. Newcrest was forced to halt production at its biggest and lowest cost mine almost a fortnight ago after the breach in the Northern Tailings Dam on March 9th resulted in material flowing into the adjacent Southern Tailings Dam. The miner said it will recommence mining, but processing remains in a halt, with the company still considering recovery options such as diverting tailings into the old Cadia Hill open pit mining, which is no longer operational. The gold miner previously confirmed it will miss its full-year production guidance and said it will be unable to satisfy contracts for copper concentrate product because of the Cadia mine closure. And finally, Qantas is mulling the idea of introducing new passenger amenities on their super long-haul flights. Qantas CEO Alan Joyce said the airline is considering a sleeping berth cabin class and dedicated exercise areas on those extra long flights to London and New York. Those initiatives would help battle the fatigue of a non-stop 20-hour flight. And he told an aviation club of a UK luncheon in London, we are also looking at do we need and should we have four classes? Is there a new class that's needed on the aircraft? Could some of the freight areas we may not use be used as an exercise area? Could they be used for berths for people to sleep in? And Mr Joyce said Qantas was working with both Airbus and Boeing on aircraft payload range performance. Now, Mr Joyce was speaking after Qantas had started, started direct flights between Australia and London, passing a major milestone by reducing a long trip to 17 hours and making it the first non-stop passenger service between the continents. And that's it for this week. And next week, we're going to have a great interview with Ryan Gracie. He is the marketing manager for The Catch Group, which has just expanded into New Zealand. So that's a terrific interview. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBioZ or on Facebook. Take care, and I'll talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 